There was a tradition in medieval times starting in the Catholic Church called Rhesus Pascalis, which is Latin for Easter laughter, in which on Easter the priest would tell a joke, leave it to the Protestants to do away with that in all of our serious austerity. But this is the fourth year I am bringing it back. So a guy decides to join the monastery and he goes to the head priest and the head priest says, you must spend six years in silence alone and after six years you can come and we'll talk. Six years pass, the man comes to meet with the priest. The priest says, you have two words. And the man said, too cold. I'm sorry about that, said the priest. I'll give you extra blankets and that should take care of you. Now go back and spend another six years in the monastery Come back and we'll talk. Six years pass. The man comes back. High priest says, how was it? And the man said, bad food. I'm sorry about that, said the priest. We will, from now on, give you better food instead of just porridge. Six years back by yourself and then we'll talk when you come back. Comes back. Six years. Priest looks at him and says, and? And the man said, I quit. And the priest said, well, I'm not surprised. All you've done is complain ever since you got here. (laughs) The thing is that every good joke has an unexpected surprise ending. And in fact, that's exactly what Easter holds forth. An unexpected surprise ending. A cosmic surprise where the reversal of sin and death is turned into life and love and forgiveness. You see, what sin does, and this is the punchline to the whole Easter joke, and I mean that not irreverently, the punchline to the whole Easter joke is this. Sin and death separates us and divides us and alienates us And the Easter power of God, resurrection power, reunites us, reconciles us, and redeems us, but not in the way we expect. Surprise. Hear the story as it comes to us according to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 1 through 18. Early in the morning on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone was moved away from the entrance. She ran at once to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, breathlessly panting. They took the master from the tomb. We don't know where they put him. Peter and the other disciple left immediately for the tomb. They ran neck and neck. The other disciple got to the tomb first, outrunning Peter. Stooping to look in, he saw the pieces of linen cloth lying there, but he didn't go in. Simon Peter arrived after him, entered the tomb, observed the linen cloths lying there, and the kerchief used to cover his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but separate, neatly folded by itself. Then the other disciple, the one who had gotten there first, went into the tomb, took one look at the evidence, and believed. It's not that he believed Jesus had been raised. He believes what Mary had said. Someone has taken him from the tomb and we don't know where they put him. 
For the scripture says no one yet knew from the scripture that he had to rise from the dead, although Jesus had told them over and over again. So the disciples then went back home. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she wept, she knelt to look into the tomb and saw two angels sitting there dressed in white, one at the head, the other at the foot of where Jesus' body had been laid. They said to her, woman, why do you weep? They took my master, she said. I don't know where they put him. After she said this, she turned away and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize him. Jesus spoke to her, woman, why do you weep? Who are you looking for? She, thinking that he was the gardener, said, mister, if you took him, tell me where you put him so I can care for him. And Jesus said, Mary? Turning to face him, she saw and said in Hebrew, Rabboni, meaning teacher. Jesus said, backing up, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go to my brothers and disciples and tell them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went, telling the news to the disciples, I saw the Master. And she told him everything he had said to her. This is the word of the Lord. No matter how prepared you are, no matter how much time you have had to get ready for it, when you lose someone you love, the first thing you notice is the vacuum left by their presence. Where before there was a living, breathing person, no more. Even a beloved pet leaves a vacuum. There was a body, a living source with its own essence, now absent space, almost a hole bigger than they were. And the better they were, the more loving and compassionate they were, the higher their energy level of goodness they were, the larger the vacuum. The vacuum always bigger than the person themselves. Think for Jesus. So when you have that experience, what you do is you busy yourself and the funeral arrangements trying to fill the space, the hole, knowing that sooner or later that hole will come up and suck you in. But for now, try to bring things to a level of closure. In Mary's case, the arrangements had already happened in keeping with the Jewish laws of purification and the funeral ritual. The body was taken from the cross. Some say, Mark says, at three o'clock in the afternoon. They only had three or four hours to get ready until the Sabbath. They had to do all the work of washing and cleaning that body and embalming it with the spices before the Sabbath began. Joseph of Arimathea said you could, he could uh, use his tomb. Nicodemus comes up carrying 75 pounds of myrrh and frankincense, burial spices, 75 pounds. When Mar- Mary anointed Jesus' feet earlier in John's gospel, she had a small jar of it. 
probably three or four ounces. That was enough. It is said it was worth 30 pieces of silver. 75 pounds is like $500,000. And we're not meant to miss how startling that is. For the higher level of love for the person buried, the more spices were being used. For Gamaliel, 40 pounds. For Jesus, 75. And I can't even imagine the aroma that must have created as they coated his body with that many spices. But they did. And they got him in the tomb and they closed the door, the stone over him. And it was now the Sabbath. And the women who did all that work went back home to wait out the Sabbath. And Mary especially until she could get back to the tomb and see the body, hopefully, and bring some closure for herself, that body that she last saw on the cross. This is the thing about death. The power it has to separate things and divide things. And when you're faced with it, you feel like you're going to pieces, you're losing it, you're breaking down, you're collapsing, and you're coming apart at the seams. So give us something to hold on to. She wanted a body. On the first day of the week at early dawn, she made her way back to that tomb as good as she could. And she stumbled into a reality she did not expect. At death as in life, this body She was so distraught. When she found the stone rolled back, she assumed someone had stolen it. She runs to tell the disciples, they've taken my master away and don't know where he is. Two disciples, Peter and the one Jesus loved, presumably John, race each other to the tomb. John does not go in. Peter does, looks around, sees the Burial cloths lying there. He steps out. John, the beloved disciple, looks in. He sees the head cloth folded up, put away gently. He comes out. They head back home, assuming that Mary was right. No body. Mary is, in the meantime, standing outside the tomb, weeping. She decides to look in for herself. There are two angels, one at where Jesus' feet had been and one at where his head had been, and I love this. Mary doesn't seem the least bit surprised by it all, nor afraid of it. I mean, if it were you or me and we saw two angels dressed in white, hello. Mary just simply says to them, they've taken away my master. Where do they put him? Expecting an answer. And before they say anything, she notices this man standing near her in the garden. She doesn't recognize him. She thinks it's the gardener. And he says to her, Mary, why are you weeping? What are you looking for? They've taken my Lord away, she says. I don't know where they put him. Maybe you know, literally pointing the finger at him, blaming him for it. And then Jesus says her name. Mary? The way he had said it every single time, their whole relationship. And only the way that he could have said it, with his inflection, with his level of intimacy, with his love, Mary. And from that moment on, she knew and recognized him. 
up here. She recognized him. Do not cling to me, he said as she reached out for a body. I have not yet ascended to God, your God and my God. Tell my brothers and disciples what I have told you. In other words, whatever it is that you see of me now, you cannot hold on to, for I will soon be gone completely, as best you can tell. Now, we say we believe in the resurrection of the body. We say that when we say the Apostles' Creed. But with whatever body it was, God raised up. It is nothing like the body we have now, Paul says. And these resurrection stories prove it. In every single way, Jesus is unrecognized until he does something particularly peculiar to Jesus' own life and relationship with those that he uh, was in relationship with. In this case, with Mary, he called her name. With the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, he walked with them. They didn't know it was him until he sat at their dinner table, took the bread and broke it as he had done the night he was betrayed. With Thomas, he showed him his nail holes, for that was how Thomas had remembered him on the cross. And with the other disciples, when he entered the room, they didn't know who he was. They thought he was a ghost until he said to them, peace be with you, the same way he had said it before. It's almost as if Jesus couldn't come to them head on. And maybe this is for a point, for if the resurrected Christ did come to them and us head on, we would be blinded by it. It would be so powerful we wouldn't be able to see again. It would reduce us to a puddle. And so instead, Jesus seems to come to us in more obtuse ways, concealed in the vulnerable and personal stories each of us have and live through our lives. As the poet W.H. Auden wrote, Truth, like love and sleep, resents approaches that are too intense. And the same for Emily Dickinson. Tell the truth, but tell it slant. Like looking at a solar eclipse, you have to look through it through a smoke glass window or it will blind you. Calvin said that God's revelation is, you know, veiled in flesh and human words and bread and wine so that we can handle it. But it's still too much. Because the light of Christ that we now look for, friends, the resurrected light of Jesus Christ is now in each of us. And if you don't think that will blind you, This is why we see through a a glass darkly, Paul says. The love of it all will take us down. We are in him, Paul says, and he is in us. Over and over and over again, this resurrected Christ, who was born into a whole new sense of being, was no longer in one place because now Christ was in all places, even in you and me. 
And what that being presence means is that we have been given the promise that all things will be restored and redeemed and reconciled and reconnected and reconstituted, not only for you and me as Christians, but ultimately for this whole bloody, broken world. All things unified, Paul says, in heaven and on earth. Every vacuum of hurt and loss filled with what? The glory and light of God. Every broken relationship restored. Every part of us that has been divided and separated by guilt and shame reconnected to the wholeness and love and grace of God. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. This is what we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God. It's not something that we go to when we die, although it is that. It is something that is now here with us. And this kingdom is available to us whenever we go through the little deaths it takes for us to finally begin to see and wake up. As Jesus told Nicodemus early in the John Gospel You have to die in order to be reborn again. And Nicodemus just couldn't get, what does that mean to be reborn? Well, he must have gotten it, 75 pounds of funeral spices. This little death must happen to us over and over again, not just once until the final death of all, when we finally experience this kingdom come for us. And if we're open to it, these little deaths end up being the very source of our wholeness. I had a recent experience that I've hesitated to share with you. I have shared with a few of you, but it's, it's intimate and it's vulnerable. And I have to say, it's not about me. Although it is about me, it's not about me. And I want you to hear that. It was last summer, Ted Powell in our church invited me to participate in his Hills training, his corporation's a week-long seminar called Hills High Impact Leadership Seminar, uh, which I did gladly, mainly because he comped me and I didn't have to pay, but also because I looked forward to it having gone through Hills 1. And we met at Jekyll Island, and for the first two days, you spend a lot of time doing yoga and meditation work and breath work and body work and trust work, and we get to know each other. And on Wednesday, we are told this is the high holy day You need to get ready for it, so you'll start fasting after lunch on Tuesday. And on Wednesday after lunch, we met to get our instructions. And the leader said, okay, here's the deal. Each of you, you're going to pair up into two groups. That would be four in each group. And each of you, well, there are two leaders. They don't participate. They're just there to help supervise. The three of you will each pick a song, and you're going to stand up and sing the first verse of that song for Two hours each. You could hear the wind go out. And my group looked at me and said, you're the preacher, you're going first. So we gathered in a little room. I had to wear blacked out uh, headband to cover my eyes. We, I couldn't see anything. I'm standing up. There are three people around me sending this positive love, compassionate trusting energy standing around me and so of course you know I picked amazing grace mainly it was the only one I was sure I could remember the first line to but of course 
And so I stand up there and I start, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. And I couldn't sing it any better then than I can sing it now, which made me completely self-conscious. Here I am standing up in this group, blindfolded, singing this song terribly. I couldn't get the pitch. I can't get the... It just doesn't come to my voice. And I'm singing along and thinking, God, what do they think of me? I'm so self-conscious about it. And after a few minutes, I don't know, some time, I start changing the cadence and the tenor, and I start changing the nuance of it, and after some more time, I'm no longer singing the song, but it's singing me, and now I'm having this conversation with it, and I guess we're probably 30 minutes into this, and I'm still singing it, and the, and the song starts singing me more and more, and then I start changing the words of it, and then I even start having a conversation with it, and I start finding myself sliding a little more into the darkness. Amazing? What's so amazing? When I get scared, I go into that place. Usually it's anger, and the first person I get angry with happens to be God, of course. So I'm having this, like, thing with God. What's so amazing about it? Grace? Where's the grace? And I'm so far into this thing by now that I'm not even aware of anything outside of me. I'm just in this place, having this conversation through this song with God. And I'm descending deeper and deeper into the darkness. And all of a sudden, I start weeping. And I say, I, have to, I need a pillow. And they brought a pillow and put it at my knees. And I fell to my knees, and I'm on my knees weeping in the dark night of my soul. I don't know how deep I'm into it. Now maybe 45 minutes or an hour. I just know I'm in the dark night of my soul and there is absolutely nothing there but my pain. No God, no light, nothing. Vacuum. I'm crying so hard by this time that things are coming out of my nose and my eyes and I'm running out of things to cry But I'm still in that place on my knees in the darkness. And all of a sudden, something calls me to vision up. And I look up, and I am, of course, at the foot of the cross. And I look up, and Jesus is on that cross right in front of me. It's as vivid now as you are sitting in front of me. And I see Jesus looking up at this face, looking down at me. And I can't tell you anything about what he looked like other than his face was ultimately compassionate, loving, and forgiving, looking down at me with this slight smile. I knew that. And then it hit me. My grandiosity, my narcissism, my ego demanded that the body of Christ be in my pocket. That he was near me and followed me and I needed that body because I deserve it. And when that body wasn't present, I'm having a temper tantrum. And it strikes me as I look up at the cross, you know what? Jesus gives us everything he has to give on that cross There is nothing else he can do. There he is, fully his body, in pain with us. Now you can imagine the tears that I'm crying out of gratitude. All of a sudden, as I'm on my knees still in this place, I start feeling something like fog moving in on me. 
and I notice that it's a light, and it's warm, and it's love, and it's, I, I don't know how to explain it. It's just this fog of light and love that comes and embraces me, and not only embraces me, but it enters into me, and now I am one with it, and it is one with me, and I know that it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the light of Christ, and all of a sudden, instead of crying, I am laughing, and I start laughing on my knees uncontrollably, and when I start laughing uncontrollably, it's not pretty. It's like, You got to be there. <laughs> 30 minutes I'm laughing. I can't stop. Finally, I've given up and given out. I can barely stand up. I finally say, Enough, enough. They reach down and they pull me up. And all of a sudden, I feel like I am a 10-year-old, the amount of power and energy that I feel at that moment not only carried me through the next two people singing, it carried me through several weeks. And the point is that for me, I had to experience one more time my ego needs going to the grave. It's not about us. It is about the light and the power of Jesus Christ on the cross and the promise of the kingdom of God that is with us now at every single death that nothing will separate us. And that's worth singing about.